I believe very passionately that each one of us was put on this earth for a reason. Now, I'm not necessarily someone who believes the lie that everything happens for a reason. However, I do believe that God's plan for our lives is intentional, it's purposeful, and even sometimes when we can't see him working, he is working. Whether you were born in a community in a developing nation and didn't have access to things like clean water or education or a roof over your head, or whether you were born on Fifth Avenue in New York City and you've had every opportunity available to you. Wherever you are, you're there and you have an opportunity to serve. I believe that we are called to serve. You know that my life verse is 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I am so passionate about serving, serving our communities, serving our families, serving the least of these, serving children in poverty abroad, whatever it looks like, I believe in serving. Because when each one of us do our part, lives can be changed. People can be released from poverty and terrible situations in the name of Jesus. And it's so, so powerful. And my guest today is leading an organization, one of the largest organizations in the world that is doing just that. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, a CEO, nonprofit director, or just an incredible person who's trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Santiago Jimmy Mayado, the president and CEO of Compassion International, one of the oldest, largest, and most reputable Christian humanitarian aid child sponsorship organizations in the world. Compassion is dedicated to the long-term development of children living in poverty. Jimmy's story of being born in El Salvador, growing up and living in seven different countries, becoming an Olympic athlete, and feeling a calling to serve the church, and ultimately ending up as the CEO and president of Compassion International is incredible. I have actually been a longtime sponsor of Compassion. We, My family and I have sponsored a child through Compassion for nearly eight years, and I love and believe in this organization wholeheartedly. And let me just tell you that in over three years of podcasting, this is probably one of my favorite interviews to date. You are not going to want to miss a minute of this conversation. And I just also want to say off the bat that if you listening have ever considered sponsoring a child through Compassion International, today is your day. Jimmy and I are actually going to talk about this more during the show, but you can go to Compassion.com forward slash Molly. Go to Compassion.com forward slash M-O-L-L-Y for more information. Without further ado, on to my conversation with Santiago Jimmy Mayado. Jimmy, it is such an honor to have you on the show today. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great. Just looking out uh, my window here at the Front Range in Colorado Springs, and it's a beautiful morning. Beautiful. I haven't been to Colorado in years, but it is one of my favorite states in the lower 48 because it is just absolutely beautiful. I feel like everywhere you turn, it looks like a postcard. (laughs) Well, and the thing is, 300 days of sun, that's what got me. It's just absolutely gorgeous. That's amazing. And it's like one of those places where you just look out and you just see the creativity of God left and right. And it oh, it's just beautiful. I have been such an advocate and a fan of compassion for many years. Um, my family and I have actually been compassion sponsors for a little over eight years. Um, I had the opportunity to visit a compassion project in mm. Kenya in 2017 And so I, you know, I just am such a advocate and fan. And I mean, I just I can only I can't say enough good things about compassion. And so to have the opportunity to sit down with you today is just truly an honor. And so I'm really looking forward to the audience of Business with Purpose, just hearing your story and hearing a little bit more about why Compassion International is just such a world changing organization. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Molly. And on behalf of the child that's on the other end of that sponsorship in Kenya, you know it's making a life-changing difference uh, in them and in their Mm -hmm. family uh, from having visited them personally. Thank you for doing that. Those visits truly are um, uh, life-changing for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to have you do what I actually have all my guests do, and that's give us the Jimmy 101. So tell us kind of your, a little bit of your story and how you got involved with compassion. Sure. Well, I was born outside the United States. Uh, my, uh, you called me Jimmy and that is my name, but that's my nickname. My real name is Santiago Heriberto Mellado. I was born, uh, in El Salvador. My parents, uh, uh, moved 41 times in 61 years of marriage. I grew up in seven different countries and went to eight different schools before graduating high school. And um, I just went all around different cultures, different settings, and I absolutely loved it. And uh, usually that's not great for a kid to move around that much, but truly for me, it was uh, it was a real positive experience. Uh, and mainly because of my parents' faith in Jesus, the stability that that provided our family. Um, there were four siblings of us, and we were each other's, uh, you know, best friends growing up, and the most stable relationships, one one place to the other, and uh, and and we were always involved on the front lines of uh, serving uh, in the any local church that we were a part of in all the countries that we lived in, and my father was in development work, so. Uh, he was building roads and dams and powerhouses in these developing uh, country settings, and I loved it. And then uh, right before college, came to the United States and was educated here and uh, went to business school. And then right after that, started serving the church um, in, a, in a, a church equipping organization for a little over 20 years. And then the last six and a half years here at Compassion. 
Wow, you just have such an incredible story. And so I want to kind of unpack it a little bit, bit by bit. Um, and I want to kind of go back to your childhood. And, and and one of the things that you, I know you've talked about um, in other forums as well, is just, again, that, that impact that your parents' faith had on you and yes. what it was like, um, you know, your mom grew up in Mexico and she yes. grew up poor and how that was something that did not define her and she didn't let it define her. And she used that really as fuel to impact you and your siblings on um, having a really a heart for um, the least of these. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and that impact that that had on your life? Sure. Well, my mom uh, was born in 1934, the daughter of uh, migrant farmers, and they were on the border of Mexico and the United States, and they just went where the work was. And um, at one point, the Mexican government was awarding land to uh uh, to people uh, that didn't have means but would commit to farm the land. And so he got a portion of land. He had to deforest it himself. Took him 18 months to do that. Um, and uh, they lived, uh, uh, you know, a, a life there on the farm, dirt floor, you know, mud walls. Mm-hmm. And my mom grew up uh, in that setting, was taught as a young girl how to keep a dirt floor clean, um, had one toy her whole uh, adole- in her whole adolescence. But it was, you know, she tells me that she didn't realize she was poor until she was uh, a little bit older, more closer to her teens, when she realized going into town, oh, other people have more. Um, and because in her household, she grew up with joy and dignity along the way. And uh, but she did have a heart for the poor. And so when she uh, married my father, uh, who also was raised in, in Mexico. Uh, he was also a very adventuresome person. In fact, my mom used to say uh, uh, when she would go into town, she would look at the labels of the various products, clothes or food or whatever, and it would say made in whatever country. And she looked at that and dreamed someday, you know, boy, I'd like to go there someday. Um, and, mm-hmm. and then my dad, he was also very adventuresome like that. Um, he, because they were also a border family, he happened to be born on the U S side. And so at 18, he decided to enlist in the army because he wanted to get his education paid for. What he didn't realize was that it was right at the start of the Korean war. So he was sent to Korea and served there uh, about three years and then came out as a veteran and then got his degree, um, uh, on the GI bill. Uh, married my mom, uh, and as an engineer, he went around the world building all sorts of projects. And I was born in El Salvador um, while he was building a dam and powerhouse there that's still operating to this day. But along the way, my mom, because of her background, always had us serving the poor. Well, she was serving the poor, frankly, and she brought us along. Um, and it wasn't in her mind that she was doing anything noble. It's just that for her, that was just normal. That's what you do. You serve the poor as a follower of Jesus. And and my father, I was always proud of his uh, vocation as well, because what he was doing would make life better and raise the quality of living uh, in the communities where his projects were. I remember living in Santa Cruz, Bolivia when I was in first grade, and my dad's project was to bring electricity there 24-7. Uh, I remember what it was like to not have electricity for major parts of the day. Um, that was just normal. And uh, my father's 
the project was to be able to provide for electricity, which again improved the quality and standard of living of of um, of those communities where he served. So serving on the front lines of poverty was really where my parents were at and and us kids came along. But I must say it was a lot about their vision uh, versus mine. It was in their heart versus mine. Now, eventually it would come and be a part of of me as well. And that's why I am where I am doing what I'm doing. But it took me, there was quite a journey for me. Because when we were living in these developing world settings, my parents, we would visit the United States and um, and they would take us to wonderful places, of course, you know, in these visits like Disneyland or uh, SeaWorld or and take us to malls. And it just seemed like this country was so perfect to me as a little boy. Uh, and then we'd go back to where we would live and didn't have so many of the things that that, you know, we all enjoy here in the United States. And I just remember thinking, oh, I want to leave this world and go live in the United States. I, I want to to be successful in the United States. Um, that was a sense that I had as a little boy. And so finally, we did. I did come to the United States. And and for me, athletics were a really, really big part of my life. Have been uh, ever since I saw and witnessed uh, on TV as a little boy in Nicaragua when I was living there the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich. And the whole, all the the the, the drama related to the uh, hostages and taking of the Israeli team and and their murder and and their deaths and and just the concept of everyone coming together in peaceful athletic competition and that being shattered at that Olympics. But I was just so mesmerized by the Olympic movement as a little boy, and so I started forming little competitions. And by the time I was in sixth grade, uh, I was able to jump over my head in the high jump. And that just kept growing and developing. And then by grad, by the time I graduated high school, I had um, uh, five events that were comparable to Bruce Jenner's decathlon experience in 1976 world record performance. I, I was comparable to him in five of the 10 events and was very much excited about leaving the developing world behind coming to the United States, competing for the United States, and, and everything that would go with that, that was my dream. And got a scholarship to the second-ranked track team in the country here in the United States and and competed for them. And uh, But then the Lord took a different, uh, you know, had a different path for me because I wanted to leave the developing world behind and be successful in the United States. And when I was in college, my final year in college, I – I hurt my leg. I tore my hamstring four different times within a two-month period, and and my career was over. Uh, I I was done at that point. Graduated, got a job uh, in 1985, and then in 1987, um, out of nowhere, I received a letter from El Salvador, the country of my birth, asking if I would compete for them in the Pan American Games in '87, which I did, and I hurt my leg again but still finished in fourth place. And they asked if I'd train for the Olympics the next year. And, and, and so I did, they said, we can't promise you a spot. We only have money for six athletes, all sports. So even if you qualify, we can't promise you that you'll go, but we'd like you to try. We're in the middle of a civil war down here, uh, but we need you to come here and train. And so I did. 
eventually qualified and was selected to be the only track and field male athlete to go in 1988. Uh, placed 26th uh, place there out of the 42. And and for me, it was very much uh, a dream come true to compete in the Olympics. Um, but I'll never forget the words of the president of the Olympic Committee said to me as I was leaving El Salvador after the Olympics to come back to the United States. He said, most of our high potential young people leave. They go to the United States, Europe, or Canada, and they don't come back. And then he kind of pointed at me and he said, please don't forget us. Um, but I must admit that for a little over a couple decades, I, I think I did. I was so enamored with wanting to be successful in the United States that I, I didn't think about the world where I came from. Yeah. And I remember being in a meeting one time, um, and it was an executive team meeting um, of a church, and the pastor just read the book Divided by Faith and talking about racism and systemic racism and, and was talking about how our church didn't in fact, reflect the changing diversity in our community and said, you know, we don't have diversity in our congregation or staff or volunteers, vocalists, instrumentalists. And it says, we don't even have diversity on our executive team. Now I'm sitting in the circle and I'm Hispanic. And, <laughs> and so it's like, okay. So I slowly raised my hand and said, well, just, just to make sure, I mean, you guys do know I'm Hispanic, right? And that my real name is Santiago Heriberto Mellado, that, and I was born in El Salvador. You understand that, right? And and everyone in the circle kind of laughed, and one person next to me uh, kind of reached over and pointed at me and said, oh, but you don't count. Oh. And, uh, and two things hit oh. me. The, the first thing was, well, I finally made it. I'm no longer Hispanic. I'm American. I've left that behind. It's what I wanted. I didn't, you know, I remember as a little kid, my parents would always send us to American schools in Latin America, wherever we were. And many times a teacher would pause in the middle of the alphabet on the first day of school. She's taking roll call. And, and I would know that the reason there was a pause is she didn't know how to pronounce my name or he. Mm. And I'd raise my hand and say, you know what, you can call me Jimmy. Don't worry about it. Uh, that's good. I, I didn't, I didn't want to um, uh, really embrace where I came from and, and who I was born. And in that setting, when they said, oh, but you don't count, that was my first thought. Well, you made it. You're, you're American. You're, you're not seen as Hispanic. And then the second thought, I take as of the Lord, because it had a profound impact on me. The second thought was, and that's not you. What are you running away from? What is it about how I created you that you don't like? And um, because I had you be born in El Salvador, I was the one that had you be born from, you know, the parents that I gave you, uh, your heritage, your culture. Why are you running away from how I created you? And that one really was the thought that, that led me on a path to come back full circle to embrace all of who I am. I helped start a Spanish service ministry in that church. They run about a thousand now. And, and then that was the start of my journey to come to compassion. And so coming to compassion and serving in many of the countries that I grew up in, serving children that are the age that I was when I was living in those countries, for me, 
is, is like coming home. Coming home not only to where I grew up, but fully embracing all of who God made me to be. And now, having grown up in the developing world, lived more as an adult in the developed world and serving the church, the well-resourced church, I think God's brought me here to be a bridge, to be a bridge between the under-resourced world and the well-resourced yeah. world. And that's um, at the center of my call now is to is to link those two worlds better yeah. uh, so we can heal each other on both sides. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You know, uh, there's a couple things that I, I want to kind of touch on. Um, but the first thing that really just struck me as you were sharing your story is how you shared as a kid you know, your mom really encouraging you to serve the communities that you were in and and, and taking care of the poor because that was your calling as followers of Jesus and how it took a while for you to kind of want to do it. (laughs) And um, that's encouraging to me as a parent (laughs) because, you know, that's something that I am really trying to instill in my kids. And I mean, they're only six and three at the time, you know, and so sometimes when we talk about kindness and taking care of those in our community, I get some eye rolls. (laughs) And, and, but, you know, I I think about just, you know, that verse where it talks about, you know, training a child up in the way that they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart from it. And how your mom planted those seeds in you. And the fruit of that is now, Th- that harvest is there, and and so that's encouraging to me. I just want to say, as a as a parent, I mean, I feel like that just ministered to me. <laughs> so uh-huh. I don't know if anybody else needed that, but I sure did. Um, and then I love the second thing that I really loved as well is just how you you linked it to how God, you know, God had you born where you were born. He had you grow up in the communities where you were to grow up because He knew all along that what your ultimate plan was going to be and to then be doing the work that you're doing with compassion and to be linking arms with these countries. I mean, it's, what is it? It's almost half of compassion's countries are in central and South America. And so, you know, you have that experience having lived in those communities, knowing what those communities in a lot of cases really need and what, what they look like and and how to be an advocate in that way. And, and and like you said, be a bridge. I just think that's really such a beautiful picture of how sometimes we, we ask God, why, why did you, why did you do this in my life? Or why was I born here? Or why did I have this family situation? Or why did I experience this trauma? Or why did I go through this grief? Or what, you know, why, 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 why? I know I go through those things all the time. Um, And then, Later down the road, God goes, that's why. <laughs> exactly. I that's mean, he's why. the God of, of of miraculous redemption, and he can redeem anything. Uh, you know, for me, I was disappointed that, that I didn't have an American name. I was disappointed that it wasn't blonde hair, blue eyes, like a lot of the missionary kids that I grew up with and knew in those settings. Um, and then God totally took that disappointment and wrapped my calling around it. And then he took my failure uh, athletically of, of getting injured over and over again and and saying, no, I don't want you to compete for the United States. I want to bring you home and compete for the country of your birth. Um, there was a humbling part of that. But then redeeming that where, you know, that was uh, one thing I didn't mention was that in 1988, when I 
competed in the, the Olympic Games in Seoul, South Korea. I went for an athletic experience and I came home with a calling to serve the church. Now, I know that sounds really strange, <laughs> but while I was there, um, many of you know that uh, there was a huge revival in the church, a movement of God's spirit in South Korea right after the end of the Korean War when my dad left it and came home. Um, that's where compassion had their start. That's where world vision had its start. That's where a church movement that totally transformed the nation of South Korea, you know, had its start. And they went from just a handful of percentages of Jesus followers to almost, uh, you know, 26, 27% Jesus followers in like a generation. And, and I heard the story of that church revival and heard of one church that was actually still is the world's largest church. But back then they told me a half a million people went to it. And that blew my mind. I was like, come on, no, that's a denomination. You wow. can't have a church, have a half a million people go to it. And they said, no, it, it's a church. So the pastor of that church came to the Olympic Village and said, if anybody wants to be prayed over, uh, come to come to church. So I did. Um, being a, uh, I was fairly uh, short and compared to the other athletes, and I figured I'll get all the help I can. And so I went to be prayed over, and and as many other athletes did, and went to the church. But I heard the story of what God did in that movement in South Korea, and in in this you know particular church. It felt like I was living and witnessing Acts two, but in our time. Of, of, of God renewing the church. And, and I remember being so excited and thinking, oh, Lord, I want to be a part of a movement like that in our time. I want to, I want to serve you. I want to serve the church. And so I came back with that calling. And, and so after I went to business school, that is what I did for over 20 years was serving and equipping local churches, but mostly in the well-resourced world again. And it was only there toward the end where I started to feel like God was calling me to not just serve the church, but to serve the church in some of the toughest areas of poverty in the world. And as you know, Compassion only does its ministry in partnership with a local church. Our mission is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. We have 7,500 local church partners, indigenously led churches, in these communities, and we're growing by about a church and a half a day. Um, and we invest in these churches so they can be in a very tangible way, the hands and feet of Jesus to the children that are in their community. And it's been such an amazing blessing for me to even go back to uh, look for my house that I lived in in Bolivia or Nicaragua, Philippines, and, and, um, and, and go to those houses and see a church near them. Uh, and I remember in Nicaragua, there wasn't a church there, but now there is. And they serve like 350 children in the area uh, that, were the, that are the age that I was when I was there. It's a blessing beyond belief. But God redeems so much that, you know, he, re he redeemed my disappointment of being born a Hispanic. He and, and helped me embrace that fully. He redeemed my failure in athletics to send me to compete for El Salvador in the Olympics, to get a call to serve the church and now to serve the church in poor areas. And, you know, you talk about the impact as a mother, um, you know, on your on your children. My mom was able to be at the ceremony where West Stafford, the former president of Compassion, passed the baton of leadership to me. And my mom was there. And wow. after the service was over, she's 85 years old now, and she came to me 
and stood right in front of me. You know, she's like five foot two or three and, and didn't say a word. And I said, mom, are you okay? And she didn't say a word. She just hugged me and she pushed back trying to get a word out. Couldn't say a word, hugged me again, pushed back a third time trying to get a word out. And this time I noticed tears welling up in her eyes and she just couldn't talk. She hugged me and whispered quickly in my ear, hablemos más tarde, which means we'll talk later. So the next day I came up and I said, mom, what was going on there after the service um, when you were standing in front of me? And she said, you know, when, when, when someone is born into poverty, they don't, they don't think that that's going to be a benefit to their children. That's something that a parent wants to lift their children out of to have a, you know, a better experience. But I could see how God used me being born into the family, into the setting that I was born in, experiencing poverty. I could see how that imparted a certain DNA into the soul of my son that now to such an extent that it's become central to his life's calling. And I was just so overwhelmed that God would be so good as to kind of fully redeem even that for his for his sake and the sake of, you know, of her son. And so that's what I was trying to say. I just couldn't say it. I was so filled with gratitude. And that's, you never know the impact of these small yeah. investments of sponsoring a child and your children are six years old and three years old, but they're going to see that child's picture on the fridge or as you pray for them. And yeah. it's going to do something that will bear fruit down the road. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love that story that you shared about your mom. And I can only imagine um, just the the amount of pride and humility that she also felt seeing her son, uh, you know, just really live out his calling. And um, I just thank you for sharing that. That was a really beautiful story. Now, um, uh, there's a question that I wanted to ask um, in regards to when you, when you were there in Seoul, South Korea in 1988, and you and you you spoke about the impact that seeing seeing Christianity and, and seeing people come to Jesus had on that country um, and, and had on the communities there. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more kind of specifically, what did that look like? Um, kind of what did it look like before and, and what did it look like as as people were coming to, to faith in Christ? Yeah. So th- there was actually revival in Korea before the war. It was only Korea. And uh, it was at the, you know, like early 1900s where there was this significant revival. And what's interesting is that it was in what we now know as North Korea. That's where uh, the revival really started. And then as it grew and spread, by the time we got to um, uh, the Korean War in the 50s, um, that's when many of those believers fled the north and went south. Mm. Um and as they did, they brought their faith with them. So then when the war stagnated and they, uh, you know, uh, split the country in two, North and South Korea, uh, South Korea was just ravaged by the war. There was poverty. Um, there were war orphans everywhere. Mm. Um, the cities had been devastated. There was no real economy. And the United States and others helped South Korea get back on its on its feet. 
And um, and what happened is uh, I'll, I'll talk about even the start of compassion. Uh, uh, an evangelist named Everett Swanson. Everett Swanson went to go and preach to the troops uh, as an evangelist. He had the Everett Swanson Evangelistic Association that was his ministry platform. And and so he came to South Korea to serve the troops. While he was there, he could not help but notice the amount of orphans that were running around. In fact, um, uh, when he was in, in the hotel lobby, uh, he had his coat sitting on, on his luggage and, and a little kid ran in and picked up that coat and ran out. Uh, of the hotel and Everett Swanson chased him and chased him on and around uh, a corner and then went into a little hut and he opened up the hut and it was just the faces of a bunch of little kids who were trying to get out of the cold and he had stolen the coat so as to help, you know, multiple kids keep warm with the coat. And then another morning Everett Swanson was walking down the street and he noticed this this man pushing a carriage and it had what he thought was laundry and he thought this person was just picking up laundry because he was taking bundles of laundry and putting it in the cart. But as he got closer to it, he noticed in fact it was not laundry, but it was in fact little kids who had frozen the night before and were being picked up and and, and taken to a place where they could be buried. And, and Ev Swanson on the ride home on the plane uh, it was a prop at that time, and it felt like the the props were just humming this message from God that was going over and over in his mind. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he felt he had to do something. He couldn't take that experience and act like it didn't happen. He couldn't unsee what he saw, and he couldn't unhear what he heard. And when he went back home, the vision of doing something to serve the war orphans got started. And there was a man in his church uh, in the Midwest that had been praying, had a $2,000 check, hadn't signed it to anybody, and and was praying that God would lead him uh, to the right person or effort to give that check to. And when he heard Ever Swanson's story, that became the first donation that started Compassion International in in 1952. And so at that point, um, Compassion started serving war orphans, um, and uh, at the same time, there was this movement of God. There was miracles and signs and wonders as I uh, chatted with the, the older folks that remember that time, and they um, uh, saw churches spring up in many different places, and today we have many of the world's largest churches, in fact, are in, in Seoul, South Korea. There was just this amazing movement, a prayer movement, actually, uh, that was just goes to this day. Uh, started a prayer movement that was 24-7. They would pray around the clock. I had never been around that level of fervent prayer. I'll never forget going to the church service, 25,000 people sitting in the auditorium. And, and when the minister said, well, now let's 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 pray. I was thinking they were going to pray like what I was used to. Everybody kind of bows their head and they're quiet and one person prays and, and that's how it goes. But when he said, let's pray, wow, 25,000 people started praying out loud. It was a roar wow. of, of, of prayer. Uh, and, and, and they would just, uh, they, they were such a praying people, uh, and the commitment around that still are to this day. But they were also a, um, 
uh, that 500,000 person church, once a year, they'd come celebrate and fill Olympic Stadium. But as big as they were, they were also very small. And so they would split up into these small groups. And that's where a lot of the small group ministries we see in the United States caught its vision from the small group system that uh, was created along with the church in South Korea. As they were growing large, they knew they had to grow small and have the church be, you know, a group of, you know, eight to 10, 12 people that were experiencing community and life together on their block um, and walking together in, in, you know, in faith. And, and it just spread. Um, and, uh, you know, they, South Korea eventually developed as a nation and they ended the program side of compassion in South Korea because they had developed to the point uh, where they could care for their children uh, within their own country. And so uh, they graduated, as we would say, from being a program country. But then later they became a supply country, a funding country. And quickly, within 10 years, became the second largest funding country, second only to the United States, in serving the poor all around the world. It's it's a it's an amazing story of transformation. That's incredible. I and and such an important point is that the prayer. I think the prayer of all of us, really, at the end of the day, is that compassion someday is no longer needed. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like you, it's 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 a very unique position to be in, where you're trying to work yourself out of a job. Out of job, <laughs> you know. Yes. But to see a country that that started off as, I mean, that's where compassion got its start to come full circle, and is now the second largest funding country. That is an if that is not evidence of the work of God, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I yeah. truly don't. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, I think that actually leads us into um, really kind of the next thing I wanted I wanted to talk about, and that's really kind of what compassion is and and how it really works and how it has become one of the the oldest, longest running, uh, you know, child sponsorship organizations in the world, how it's one of it, it, you know, is the most reputable organization. This is an organization that through and through does what it says um, and is committed to the work of releasing children from poverty in Jesus's name and and the impact that it can have. Um, And so, you know, you took over as CEO in, I want to say it's 2013, correct? Correct. Yes. And how did that come about? And what has that journey looked like for you since you became a part of the Compassion Family? Sure. Well, Wes and I, the former president, we had been friends since about 1994. So we've been long, long, long time friends, kindred spirit. We, uh, uh, I became president of the Willow Creek Association right at the same time he became president of Compassion International. And for um, mentoring purposes, another leader brought a few of these evangelical uh, uh, leaders that had just become presidents of their ministries, he brought us together, just about six of us, into a small retreat. Wes and I roomed at that time. Again, this is back in 1994, 95. And we instantly became friends. Uh, I mean, we were just, our hearts were bonded at that time. And then we he served at Compassion as president for about 20 years. And I was right at that 20-year mark as well. Uh, serving at the Willow Creek Association, training and 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 building and equipping into the local church, um, and compassion 
and Willow Creek Association were partners back then. So we, um, since we were both about equipping and serving the church, that formed a very uh, relevant partnership. And as you recall, when I w- had that experience of, um, you know, coming back to where I came from and beginning to start ministry in Latin America, we started expanding into Latin America uh, as well um, with a leadership training event called the Global Leadership Summit into all of Latin America. That coincided with a partnership with Compassion. So for the previous six years before I came to Compassion, I was on the other side of the fence partnering with Compassion and so became somewhat known internally here at Compassion. And and again, Wes and I were just dear friends, got to meet the executive team over those years. But then about seven years ago, before I came, Wes pulled me aside after one of our partnership meetings. And he said, you know, Jimmy, uh, God's calling me to retire next year. And I don't get to serve on the selection committee. I don't get a vote. Uh, but I can suggest names. And I just need to let you know, in my quiet times, I've been sensing that 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 possibly God would be calling you to succeed me. And and I thought, wow, um, I, I did not expect that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are a very small ministry compared to the scale of compassion. And so I was thinking, no, you're probably talking to the wrong guy. You should be talking to someone that's leading this, some really large ministry that you know, has done that before and, and, you know, not, not be talking to me. And and Wes said, well, uh, well, you don't fully understand what we're looking for. Um, We're looking for someone who's called to serve the church. And that's your calling. We don't want you to change your calling. We just want you to sit at a different seat at the same table for the sake of children living in poverty and focus your equipping the church calling to serve children in poverty, to serve the church in these tough, tough, tough regions around the world. And so that started a a conversation, a prayer process that, you know, obviously took close to a year or so to to come together where I too felt like God was calling me uh, to come to compassion as Wes was retiring. And and so that was that was the journey. And again, what I shared earlier played a huge part in me being able to embrace coming to compassion really as that next step for me to live out my particular calling of why God put me on earth. And I saw all of my time serving and equipping the church in the well-resourced world primarily as really a kind of training ground, if you will, that prepared me to then bring that into the world where I grew up in. What a powerful, powerful story. And I love that that Wes saw that that in you. And I love how he said, we don't want you to give up your calling. Because <laughs> um, sometimes I feel like as, as God calls us to different things, we can feel like, wait a second, uh, you know, but you had me doing this. I thought you wanted me to yeah. do this. And he's like, no, 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 I, I want you to do that in this in this realm or in this in yeah. this uh, kind of venue, um, and so now, I mean, compassion has grown to what is it? Twenty five countries around the world. I mean, you have thousands of employees, <laughs> and one of the things that I think is also so powerful and a really important thing to note is that the way that compassion operates is that you are partnering with these local churches. All of the staff in each country at 
each compassion project are local people. And so it's not, you know, this is a conversation that I think is important to have is like, it's not this kind of um, Western saviorism, white saviorism mentality of we're kind of going in there and we're going to show you how to do things and we're going to, because we do things the right way because we're coming from the developed world. It's not that at all. And I think that's a really important thing to distinguish is that it's, it's linking arms with people who are on the ground in those communities they know what those communities need and you're simply coming alongside those 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 incredible people and partnering with them to give them simply the resources that they need absolutely molly you've done your homework uh, uh, you are you are capturing the heart and the approach and strategy of compassion 100% in these 7,500 churches, we have about 100,000 workers, uh, about 15 roughly per church, that are the ones that serve about 250 to 300 kids per project. And they're the ones that are, in a very tangible way, loving on these children, serving them holistically so that they can develop their fullest potential in Christ. So we're serving them uh, uh physically and we're serving them cognitively in their their mental development and also their socio-emotional development and of course their spiritual development as well giving them an opportunity to understand that there is love in this world that has their name on it and the author of that love is Jesus and they can know him and they could walk with him during their tough you know years of of toughest years of their of their life and releasing them from poverty in Jesus name holistically in every possible way to by the time they leave the compassion program which you know, can range, it could go up to 22, but include a university education or vocational school training or entrepreneurship training or even ministry training where a lot of our upper teens, they're the ones serving, leading small groups, leading yeah. worship, some of them preaching, uh, leading small group ministries. And so, you know, they're they're truly um, being raised up in the context of a local church led by people that live there, know them, know their name or committed to the, the community over the long haul. And and then uh, these 100,000 workers are really the frontliners for us. And then we have about 2,000 staff that are also indigenous leaders that we get to serve so they can serve the 100,000. Uh, and then we have really only about um, a thousand or so employees that would be in the funding countries, if you will, to help connect sponsors and contributors to uh, help them connect their heart's desire to serve the poor and connect them in a very real way with ministry to serve the poor in these 25 countries that you mentioned. Yeah. And um, I actually was really curious. So I did a little bit of research um, and I found a study that was done by, a, I mean, it was done by a non-Christian organization is the Journal of Political Economy was done um, a few years ago. And they they studied the children that go through the, the Compassion Child Sponsorship Program. And it, I mean, showing that it resulted in significantly higher rates of children completing school, greatly improved adult employment outcomes. I mean, a very, very large percentage of these kids are when they go through the compassion sponsorship program, they are set up for success into adulthood. And, and, you know, I'm always very, very sensitive to the fact that I think sometimes statistics can be, um, 
a little dis, uh, numbing for people is people they can't connect to statistics. And but I I personally uh, know uh, you know of, of quite a few people who have been impacted through compassion because they were uh, children who were sponsored through compassion. I have actually have uh, uh, three friends who uh-huh. grew up um, children sponsored through compassion. Um, and uh, actually, for the Business with Purpose podcast listeners, if you want to go way back in the archives of this show, all the way to episode, I believe is nine, when I had uh, Kristen Welch and Maureen Kaderi on the show. And Maureen uh, shares her story of growing up as a child um, in Kenya, and she was a compassion uh, child. And her husband today was also a compassion child. Um, But they are now serving the least of these in their community in Kenya. Um, She shares her whole story on that episode. Um, But one of the things that I just think also is so incredible, because when I was in Kenya back in 2017, we had the opportunity to go have dinner at their apartment Mm -hmm. in Nairobi. It was very close to the airport. And um, they showed us the, the child that they sponsor. And so both of them sponsor two children there in Kenya through compassion. And how, I mean, just that to me is such a a beautiful picture of of the impact and now that you know that they're paying it forward um i have another friend who uh, is here in the united states she and her husband sponsored uh, children through compassion for many years many many years got so close with their uh sponsored child that uh i kid you not when it was time for her to get married her my friend's husband walked their compassion wow. child down the aisle wow is that not incredible is that, how beautiful I mean, is that? How beautiful is that? And like, what other opportunity do we have <laughs> to 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 really love on people and see life change in the name of Jesus? Um, you know, and it just really, really illustrates how important and how vital the work of compassion is. That and and how it is truly changing lives. It truly is. Well, that, that's certainly our heart's desire. We have about a million three graduates now in the world uh, over the years. Um, but we're thinking that those graduates are going to continue to grow in number uh, because right now we're serving 2.1 million children. And so um, with increasing numbers every year, so that number keeps growing and they're, they're now uh, stepping into adulthood and into their lives, leading their families, leading in their communities. One of the, you, you mentioned that study. One of the things that was just amazing to me is to have, you know, 50 to 80% higher likelihood of completing university. And often they're the first ones in their family that had ever even been to university and, uh, much higher likelihood of them being able to complete university, have a, a job, support their family, support their church, and then begin to start giving back to that next generation. And I love it when I go to churches. And this has yeah. happened often in the field. I've been now of our, you know, uh, many countries. I just like a few that I haven't been to yet. But I love going to the countries and, and you know, hearing the story of these pastors. And, and often I'll hear them say, well, I was a compassion child in this project. And now he's the pastor of the church. Wow. Uh, just, you know, uh, uh, such a, a beautiful story to see the impact of the ministry in, in real life, standing right in front of you. And I love it when in our national offices, we keep track 
of the percentage of our local staff in the offices, in the national office, that are beneficiaries. So in some of our offices, you know, 40% of the of the uh, workers are uh, former compassion beneficiaries or 20%, but they keep track of it. And uh, when we opened up a second call center in the Philippines so that we could, you know, be serving people uh, throughout a greater portion of the day, uh, we partnered with a phone center in the Philippines and, um, and we uh, made it so that that phone center is 100% serviced by compassion, former compassion children, compassion wow. graduates. Wow. So if you call compassion, you might get, if you call at a certain time of the day, you might get an actual child that is going to try to serve you, but who was in the program as well. That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, well, I wanted to do something a little bit unique um, on this episode, because obviously this is something that I I'm so passionate about that I put my money where my mouth is. Like I shared that my family and I have been compassion sponsors for years. Um, I've seen a compassion project firsthand um, in Kenya. I'm actually going to be traveling back to Kenya, it looks like, in January of this year um, or January of 2020 and hoping to make another trip to see compassion um, again while I'm there. Um, and But I wanted for us to just take a moment to challenge any listeners um, who are who have never had an experience with compassion to, I want to put a call out there and boldly ask you to start sponsoring a child today. Like I want to do that. I want to take a moment to do that. Um, and so I'm going to first say how you can do it. And then we're going to say why you should do it. <laughs> um, and so you, you can go to compassion.com forward slash Molly, M O L L Y compassion.com forward slash Molly. There's a button right there. You'll see my, my smiling face. <laughs> and um, when you see my smiling face, there is a button there that literally says sponsor a child. Um, and from there you can search countries. You can search by age. You can search kind of whatever you like. Um, when we started sponsoring um, one of our children, um, we wanted a, a, one of our, our compassion children to have a birth date similar to our daughters um, to kind of, you know, create that common um, connection. So you can, you know, select by birth date. You can even search by um, children who are the on the longest, uh, who've been waiting the longest for a sponsor. Um, yeah. And and so you go there, you fill out your information. Um, it's a hundred percent tax deductible donation, um, and you know from that moment you have the opportunity to come alongside this child and be a part of their transformation. Um, and so, you know, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to kind of share why you think somebody should also sponsor a child today, like right now. I'm just going to call it out. So if you are listening and this has been tugging at your heart, like this is not a, this is not an infomercial. I just really feel passionate about this and I want to see more children released from poverty in Jesus's name. And I think yeah. we can do it together. So would you share a little bit why you think somebody should be a compassion sponsor? Absolutely. Um, I do it by describing compassion as a uh, a ministry, it's kind of the story of two lines. Uh, Compassion is 67 years old, and it took 56 years to reach the first million children. And then it took 11 years. That's the first line. The second line is an 11-year line, and that's how long it took to reach the second, the two millionth child serve. So there's been this incredible growth the last 11 years, 
and you think two million, oh, that's such a large number, but it's it's really not. When you compare it to the number of children living in poverty today, those that are living under $5.50 a day or less is one billion children. And you mentioned earlier that sometimes statistics numb us uh, because we just can't access them. And so you think two billion, one billion children, we're serving two million children, that's just 0.2% of the need. Mm-hmm. And so I keep casting vision for people to understand there's such need out there, even today in our modern world, of, of so many children that whose lives would be transformed by the love of Jesus in a, a local church, in their community. They don't have to move or go anywhere else. It's in their community. Their lives can be changed. And that study you referred to earlier reflected a very interesting number that I carry with me all the time. When you sponsor a child, on average, you are providing that that child would have about 4,000 hours through their toughest, most at-risk years of their life, contact time with other Jesus followers that are going to love on that child during their adolescent years and as they're growing up. 4,000 hours of, of, of love filled from Jesus time for that child. It will transform their lives. And even though uh, 1 billion children may seem like a lot, let me share another number that'll be a little more encouraging. Best we can tell, in this world, there are about 600 million evangelical Jesus followers that that want to serve the poor. About 600 million. Um, you know, they say there's about 2 billion Christians in the world, but a lot of that is label stuff. So best we can tell, it's about 600 million uh, folks that, that, that follow Jesus that would respond and connect with a ministry like Compassion. And so within the church— we could serve the billion within the church. We could take care of even within the billion, there's 400 million children living on less than a dollar ninety a day. We can take care of those uh, with a higher priority. So, but everybody's got to play their part. Yeah, I got to play my part. You know, we've been sponsoring children long before I came to Compassion. Um, and, and my kids grew up uh, with a sponsored child, each of them. Actually, my three kids had a child with their same name yeah. that they sponsored. And they could that. relate and connect. And and it changed my kids' hearts uh, because I think all kids are at risk, some because of poverty, but some because of plenty as well. Mm-hmm. There's risk there as well. And by connecting uh, my children that grew up in the well-resourced world with other children in the under-resourced world with their same name, it changed them. And, and, and of my three kids, they had to grow up listening to the stories of the other three kids and Two out of the three kids had their parents die along the way. And my child is walking with them through that pain and agony. And somehow the the next iPhone release doesn't sound so important anymore yeah. when when you're walking with another child in a very different circumstance. So it, it not only changes the child on the receiving end of that um, living in poverty, but it also changes the child on the front end of that, that's serving them as well. And that's just the way God made it to be, that as we serve each other, we heal each other. Yes, yes, amen. I also just love how easy compassion has made it for sponsors to connect with the children that they sponsor. I mean, now you can, there's an app, you can go on the app and write a letter, you can upload pictures, you can send a birthday card, a present at Christmas. It's just, it's so easy. And 
every single month when we receive a letter from our sponsored child, my kids get so excited to open mm. it up and read it. And then they, you know, now they're at the age where they'll draw a picture. They want to send something. And it really is just such an an incredible way to connect. And then if you have the ability to then go on a trip and to meet your child and, and see their community and see where they live and, um, and yeah. further deepen that relationship is so powerful. It is so powerful. And I mean, I hate this sounds so cliche to say, but like, really, you can literally change a child's life for like, less than five cups of <laughs> Starbucks a month. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it that sounds so cliche, but it's so true. I mean, the, the, the amount that it costs to sponsor a child less than $40 a month is, is life changing for them is life-changing and that is a drop in the bucket for the majority of us a drop in the bucket and it is it can have such a lasting impact on a child's life um, and I like you said I mean if the 600 million professing um, believers were to just come alongside and sponsor a child I mean the impact that the church yeah. could have on on those living in poverty would be incredible incredible and we could be closer to that goal of working ourselves out of a job and absolutely um, yeah so again i'm going to reiterate you can go to compassion.com forward slash molly m-o-l-l-y all the information is there it's so easy hey we're heading into the holiday season maybe just maybe i'm just Mm -hmm. saying for the people that have everything and don't need stuff maybe sponsor a child (laughs) that would be an incredible gift um so uh i just want to put that out there um santiago jimmy (laughs) i'm gonna call you both because i feel like we're i feel like we're family now um truly i i cannot tell you how grateful i am for for you for the work that you're doing um and for your time here on the show to just share your story and share a little bit more of the compassion story i know that people are going to be impacted by this um, and so i am forever grateful well molly it's been my blessing and my pleasure and really an honor to be a voice to the voiceless uh that don't get to be on a podcast Mm. to tell their story i I wish I could tell the story of the 2.1 million children we serve, but even more so the story of those yet to be served, yet to be reached, and and we together can reach them. So thank you for the privilege, the honor of really just being a voice for them. Yeah. Now, before we go, I have to ask you one more question because it's a question that I ask all of my guests um, before you leave us, and that is, uh, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? Well, ultimately, for me, it's just it's an expression and a fulfillment of my calling. It's a fulfillment of of my purpose of why God put me here on earth. Now, I'm one of those that believes that that for every believer, no matter what vocation they're in, it's ministry. So if you're an engineer or a police person or or whatever, that that is your ministry and you can fully live out that ministry in 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 the kingdom way that would be transformative to everybody that you come in contact with. So that's that's, you know, what I believe about that. Um, But I must say that where the actual result of directly, directly the ministry that I get to lead uh, being serving and saving and loving children who are living in a very difficult, difficult situation that they're for me, um, 
is just an extra blessing that I t carry with me in my heart that I get to the actual work product that I do, if you will, is in fact about serving and wanting to extend the love of Jesus into the lives of children. One of our executives was uh, the CEO of a major pizza company that we would all know. And uh, he was in a he was in an executive meeting and it was getting heated arguments back and forth. And 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 he stopped everybody and he said, hey, 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 everybody, let's just calm down, calm down. After all, it's just pizza dough, pepperoni and tomato sauce. Come on, let's calm down. It's not like lives are at stake. And um, and then something happened in his heart when he said that that led him on a journey to really make a change in his life and move toward a different calling. And he's now on staff on our executive team here at Compassion. And one year later, after that meeting at the pizza company, one year later to the day, he was sitting in our board meeting. It was his first day of, of employment here at Compassion. And we were talking about how, because of governmental issues, we were having to depart uh, one of our countries. Um, and it was life and death for those kids. And he began to to get teary-eyed in the middle of that meeting because here he was a year later, later where the the work of his and the of his hands, the labor was actually truly in this setting. It did mean life and death for for people, it, and it mattered in that way. Um, and so there's uh, he just feels like he's living out what it means for him to be a part of this movement, this redemption movement. And and we're all a part of it. Again, no matter what vocation you're in, vocation you're in, you're you're a part of this Jesus movement. Um, but it's a it's just a beautiful um, experience to be able to be a part of a ministry who's actually um, the work product, if you will, of what we do is serving children in such desperate need. It's just a huge blessing. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that's really, um, really, really powerful. And I know that uh, for a lot of people, especially those that are, you know, sometimes ask, you know, well, I'm, I'm just a teacher or I'm, I'm just an engineer or I'm just this or I'm just that. And I always want to say, no, no, no. God put you where right. you are for a reason. And that right. can be your ministry. Um, so I just love that, that insight and that inspiration. And again, thank you so much for your time. This has been truly a blessing. And um, I am just, I cannot wait to see us in this lifetime work ourselves out of a job. <laughs> Amen to that, Molly. Thank you so much. Amen. Now do you see why this conversation was one of my favorites? Gosh, the tangible ways in which we can see God working, lives changed, and so much more through the work of Compassion International, through the life of Jimmy, I just have no words. I loved hearing the story of how Everett Swanson was in South Korea preaching to the troops and saw the orphans there that needed someone to come alongside them and and be a resource for them and how South Korea is the second largest donating country in the world. This is just incredible. I really have no words. I'm so grateful for Jimmy. I'm so grateful for the time that he had on the show today and I hope this conversation blessed you. And again, I am going to boldly say you you, yes, you listening, sponsor a child today. Go to compassion.com forward slash Molly. That's compassion.com forward slash Molly for more information to start sponsoring a child today. Just think 
of the thousands of people that are going to listen to this episode. If just even a fraction of them sponsored a child today, the impact that we could have around the world, the ripple effect that that would have long term. I realize it sounds like a drop in the bucket, but man, it is so important and it really does matter. As always, I would love to know what you loved about this episode or something that you learned. So please let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast when you share the show. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first-time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring amazing entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you are a regular listener of the show, thank you for tuning in week in, week out, and thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and click that subscribe button to help make sure you never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review? Leaving a review just helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is impacting you. As always, this show is edited by my amazing husband and executive producer, John Stillman, with support from Kelly Dalton, and the music is by Mark Killian of Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening, and go do something good with purpose on purpose. Purpose.